Welcome to Break Some Dishes podcast. We like tangents. We like to digress. One thing John and I agree on and totally believe in is that sometimes we can gain much more insight into what we do, what we work on, and our industry by actually looking outside of it. I came into this world of interior design from fine arts and landscape architecture, and I think that that's why at my firm, we've questioned the process, upended things, and done things a little differently. And now I'm currently trying to pivot us to also focus on the urgent issues of our planet. We all need to join forces to combat climate change. Here on Breaks and Dishes, we do have conversations with peers in the industry that are taking on that fight, but we also talk to some trailblazers that are saving the planet in incredibly interesting ways. I hope you're learning as much as I have been doing this podcast. All right, John, are you ready to take it away? I know you are. Uh, I'm always ready to take it away, Verda. We got sound. We got everything working today. looks like we remembered to hit the record button. So I am really, really excited about our episode today. I don't even know what number it is. It might be number nine, number 10, number nine. Yeah, super, super. I'm I'm really excited today because I've actually known today's guest for a very long time, uh, all of his life, actually, because he is my nephew. Uh, his name is Zach Cesaro. And in our family, without exaggeration, we tell people all the time that Zach is going to change the world. And I truly believe that. I believe that he will. At this tender age of almost 26. He turns 26 this month, actually. So he's getting he's getting up there in the years. But he's doing some pretty interesting things that on the surface, we might not say have much to do with interior design. But Verda, as you and I both know, interior designers need inspiration. And sometimes it needs to come from outside interior design. In fact, it does all the time. So let me tell you a little bit about Zach. He graduated from Cornell with a BS in chemical and biomolecular engineering. I like to say that he's got his brains from me, but I I honestly can't make that genetic connection. So I I like people. John, I don't think he got his looks from your side of the family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. He's got me beat in the brains and in the looks. So um uh, you know, I I don't even know if if I can mentor him. Uh, maybe he, I think what we're looking for is for Zach to mentor us a little bit. You know, after graduating from Cornell, Zach took some time uh, in New Zealand, right? Zach was it New Zealand? Yeah, it was, worked yeah. on did some. What is it called? Woofing. 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 On organic farms. Yeah, where you work on an organic farm, you kind of work and you and you know you work for your your food and lodging. Uh, he did that for quite a while, which I wish that I did when I graduated from college. But you know, when I graduated from college, it was like okay, now it's time to work. So I think I took a weekend off and you know went to New Jersey or something. He did that, did some consulting for a while, and then Zach had an opportunity to pursue his doctorate at uh, Oxford University which is where you're at now, right? Right, Zach? Yep. So I don't want to get too much into it because that's why we've got Zach with us here today. Um, But sometimes you need to go into someone else's kitchen to find some broken dishes. Uh, 
And, uh, and that's what we're doing. That's what we've done. Zach is already breaking dishes. Uh, he had the audacity to do it without us. So now we've, we've roped him in to our podcast, Break Some Dishes, today. And he's going to break some with us. So, Mr. Zach, welcome, buddy. It's so good to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I am extremely glad to break some dishes with you guys today. Yeah, well, we are, uh, we're, yeah, we're really happy to have you. And I, I want to tell everybody that, uh, you know, what Zach is working on, as you can imagine, as a, was it a bionuclear engineer? Yeah, but, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> as a molecular engineer and a, chem, a chemical engineer, you're working on some pretty intense technologies. And I just want to start the uh, conversation out by saying that Zachary is working on a process of making ammonia that's completely a renewable fuel source and completely carbon free. And I might add, Zach, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also very easy to store this as a fuel source. And we just had a guest on our podcast, Zachary, who talked about the problems that we face with embodied carbon. And I don't know if you're familiar with that term or not, because fugitive carbon, uh, carbon offsetting, you know, there's a lot of terms for carbon and how we're dealing with it today. But are you familiar with carbon for with uh, embodied, embodied carbon? My my gut instinct is actually more of a chemical one to think of products like urea that have carbon dioxide in them, but once we use them, it's released. I can also think of like your shipping emissions of any product being some kind of embodied carbon emissions in in the product's lifetime. Am I right? Yeah. Or am I wrong? Yeah. No, you're right. And designers, we we Everything we build has embodied carbon. Concrete has a lot of embodied carbon. And I think it's about 40% of the carbon in the world is, is our built environment. And so that's our big, one of our big challenges to reduce embodied carbon versus, we just learned this yesterday, versus funk operational carbon, right, John? Which is the carbon that you use to warm and heat your building and that type of thing. We're yeah, something. So, <laughs> man, hey, hey, listen, if Vern and I can learn stuff, anybody can learn stuff. <laughs> Zach, Zach, before we get too much into green ammonia, yep. how did how did how did you get how did you get here? What have you always been uh, passionate about the environment? I mean, you've gone to to Kenya to to talk to people about this. I mean, you've you've literally been all over the world talking about this, but Let's take a step back. How did you get involved in it? I think um, originally it was during my undergrad at Cornell that I became interested in working on climate change related topics. I didn't learn about green ammonia there. It wasn't on the radar then, but I was interested in just the whole field and, and getting into it. Chemical engineering historically has actually been like the oil and gas profession. So sometimes it's called petroleum engineering. Sometimes it's just chemical engineering. Um, it's all that pumps and refining chemicals. It's traditionally an oil and gas profession. And being a young chemical engineer graduating, you realize that you don't really want to go work for oil and gas, or at least that's what I realized for myself. Um, I would have rather used um, my, my time and my efforts to go the other direction and find some alternatives. 
So I, yeah, it was this interest and it, I mean, I think it's just also the, the problem of our time. I see it as, I mean, there are certainly many problems we have to deal with, but I think there's a really good quote I like that a scientist's work is determined by his or her interests and the interests of their time. And I think the interest of our time, thankfully, isn't bombs and war, or at least the majority of it. I think the interest of our time is how are we going to prevent this common enemy climate change from really destroying all of our lives and livelihoods. So for me, it's kind of a no-brainer that that's what you would work on if you can. And so I wasn't working on that. I didn't get a job in the renewable energy space after graduating my undergrad. Did you know Did you know when you were at Cornell and you were studying chemical engineering that you were not going to go into the traditional petroleum? Yeah, I knew pretty, I knew pretty quickly I wasn't going to go into the traditional oil and gas field. I was... I was maybe to an extent, and, and the consulting job I ended up taking, I did work for some oil and gas clients. And, right, I remember that. And there is a truth in the fact that they are the biggest emitters, and even a 1% reduction on a process there can make more of a difference in your life than anything else you do. So there's certainly, there's ways to think about you can work for an oil and gas company and do really great things. So I'm not saying like you shouldn't absolutely work for one. There, there's ways to do good there too. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, I was more interested in the like Teslas and companies that were doing new things rather than trying to fix old things, I guess. Yeah, well, we all hope that the future is green energy, right? Or it has to be, right? It does have to be. <laughs> and that's an interesting dichotomy like you have a choice you can go embrace the devil and hope that you can have a positive impact and make an improvement there right like you said if a one percent improvement can make a drastic change maybe you want to take that on right it's interesting yeah and i think i i often think of the oil and gas companies have such they're so incredibly capable of like what they can do, they can be in every country, they can extract tremendous amounts of oil and gas from the earth in a re- like very safe manner. They almost no accidents. Like when you think of the, their processes, they're very, very safe. They're efficient, they're low cost, they get them to consumers on every corner of the world. I mean, they're operationally very impressive companies. And I think often we just, it segues a bit into my work that there are some purposes for chemical fuels in the future and tapping into the operational capabilities of the oil and gas giants Mm. is probably better than, I I think it might help us get there quicker than trying to paint them as the devil. And yeah, so, but I, I see both sides. Sometimes you need a disruptive force that's not them because incrementally only gets you so far. Um, yeah, but let's get them on our side. Yeah, I'm hoping that the and I, they are. I think BP and a couple others yeah. have, have have come up with some commitments to to move towards green energy. And I think they're all realizing that the day is coming when they're going to have to pivot their business models or or not survive because uh, solar and wind is becoming a lot cheaper, and maybe yeah. even green ammonia. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, Verda, are you ready? Yeah, I think are, you, so. are you ready for Zach to tell us what green ammonia is all about? Yeah, please be all gentle right. on us. <laughs> get, get your pencil out. We're taking notes. Yeah, the maybe tell the, us about it, Zach. the downside of a 
just a podcast is I don't get to bore you with a whiteboard of like drawings <laughs> of chemical formulas and, and all that good stuff. No, come um, on, I told you, let's, let's, Thank God. let's <laughs> yeah. simplify it, baby. <laughs> the one bit of chemistry, I actually, I often joke that ammonia was, it's probably one of the first reactions you learned in your chemistry class in high school called the Haber-Bosch process that makes ammonia. And it's, um, ammonia is NH3. And that is the only formula I hope I will have to give you. Like, I, I promise I won't, I'll try not to stay. But it's one nitrogen, right. it's made of nitrogen and hydrogen. And what's great about that is there's no carbon in it right off the bat. Um, and it's, it's a chemical that can be a liquid. We already make tons and tons of it all over the world. I think 60 countries make ammonia ranging from the US to China to India to Mexico to you name it, they probably make ammonia. And Zach, when you say ammonia, you know, the first thing I think about is the ammonia that is in a grocery store that you can buy. To, is that, am I thinking about it in the right terms? Yep. So that ammonia you buy in the grocery store is the same ammonia. It's probably diluted with water. It's not pure ammonia, um, oh. but, it, but it's got, it's the same, it's probably a couple percent ammonia in water. And so it's used for cleaning, but predominantly the there's a huge industry today of ammonia and it's used for fertilizer. So arguably one of the most important human inventions was creating synthetic ammonia. Um, so Haber and Bosch won Nobel prizes for this. And it was in the 19, early 1900s. It's about a hundred years old now. That's why we have seven and a half, eight billion people on the planet is because we can use for fertilizer. Um, and the nitrogen in any fertilizer, fertilizers are N, P, and K, nitro, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Damn, I've given you another... Um, okay, you just gave us another formula. Yeah, I know. Minutes after you <laughs> promised, you would only give us I'm one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Something like half of the population today couldn't eat without synthetic ammonia production because we couldn't grow enough crops because we don't fix fixate nitrogen into the soil fast enough. Um, now, that's a whole other discussion on, on could we do that organically? Yeah, we, let's not get there yet because I want to. So, what is green ammonia and why do I study it? It's, in short, it's a fuel you can make from just air and water, and it doesn't have carbon in it. So, it's a great fuel for that purpose. It's a liquid, easy to ship around. We already ship it around the port of Los Angeles. I can't remember, like 200,000 tons are already stored there. Pretty much every major port in the world sends and receives ammonia shipments today, and it doesn't have carbon in it. So, it's just nitrogen and hydrogen. So you can just make it from air and water. And the there's a way to do it in a green method, which is not how we currently make these 200 million tons per year of green ammonia, of ammonia. And there's a brown, the brown method that we currently use produces carbon emissions in the process of making it. But I work on the green method of production. And we see that that can scale very quickly and can be cost competitive already today in some regions of the world. Um, and green ammonia plants. So I work here at Oxford at what was the world's first green ammonia plant, opened in 2018. And another one was built in Japan, I think the year after. And now there have been plants announced all over the world. Um, Australia, Saudi Arabia, Chile, New Zealand, Morocco. Um, any here in the U.S.? Did you say any in the U.S.? No, unfortunately not. Well, thank God we have our coal-fired plants here in the U.S. And it's it's just, but it, I've, I think there are some in the pipeline. I just, I maybe can't disclose too much or, or I shouldn't know too much about them in North America. 
but it's they're going to pop up all over the place in short. Um, so um, ammonia is 100 years old, yep. but this process of making green ammonia where we do not discharge any carbon, yep. how old is this? You could argue it's it's probably like 30 years old, 40 years old. Um, we were doing it in in very niche applications, even I think in the 1970s, so 50 years old. It, it quickly became not economic because natural gas got so cheap. But we kind of dabbled with it, let's say, in the 1970s. Why were we doing it back then when we weren't even thinking about carbon? Because we had some really big hydro plants in certain parts of the world, hydroelectric plants. And the way to convert the hydroelectricity into ammonia was the green ammonia process. And then natural gas became so cheap that it quickly didn't make sense to do that. Now we're reaching a point where it's starting to become economic again because solar and wind are even cheaper than hydroelectricity. So it's becoming cheap again, and we have this imperative to decarbonize. Yeah, and we're talking about uh, the shipping industry really adapting to this quickly too, right? Yes, so it's probably the leading shipping fuel, green fuel, in, in the works right now. So you have the biggest ship manufacturer, ship engine manuf- manufacturer called Man uh, Engines, they planning to have an ammonia engine on the market in the next couple of years. They're looking at, I think they're already designing an ultra-large container ship to run on ammonia. And this is an example of, yeah, it actually a massive industry that uses a ton of oil right now, heavy fuel oil, some of the worst. It's it's the bottom of the barrel. That expression is, is really coming mm. from what they're burning. Um, yeah. They're burning some really nasty stuff. And amazingly, because the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is a UN body, it's actually quite straightforward for them to enact legislation compared to other sectors to decarbonize the shipping. And and also with shipping, a, a boat is a 30-year asset at least. So if you're looking at decarbonizing by 2050, you got to start getting them in the water today. Oh, yeah. Wow. You think of the airlines industry, I never even thought of Boats and ships. And Ship, shipping is huge. Yeah. Ship, shipping is uh, 80% of world trade. Wow. And from the notes that I have, about 3% of the global carbon offset comes from that shipping industry. Wow. And, uh, you know, I wasn't even thinking when I was reading that about what happens when you have an oil spill, right? So I, it sounds to me like I would much rather have a green ammonia spill than a, a, a an oil spill. I don't know. Yeah, I. I guess they're both pretty bad. It wouldn't be great. Yeah. <laughs> so ammonia is a it's a naturally occurring. Well, I mean they're both naturally occurring, but um, we use it in fertilizers. We actually run off a lot of it into our rivers and lakes, which isn't so good. So in fertilizer application, maybe only twenty percent actually goes to the plant. The rest gets run into the water and lakes. So that's not great. We we understand we need to deal with that from an environmental standpoint. Um, I would, in the shipping sector, we would hope that there would be very, very, very few incidents of ammonia leakage or spilling. It would be combusted and it turns back into water and air. So you wouldn't have any byproduct ammonia coming coming out anywhere. So does it work similar to biofuels? And I know biofuels were was touted as the gold, the golden ticket or whatever, but it turns out you've got to You've got to change crops. You, take, you need to take up crops that would other, otherwise be used for food to grow the 
the plants to create the biofuels and then biofuels when they burn emit carbon. And biofuels are actually a great, I think the, the comparison between ammonia and biofuels is the crux. It's something that gets me really excited about why ammonia is so relevant is that it's so scalable, whereas biofuels are not scalable. So if you take the shipping industry as an example, if you want to supply all of the shipping fuel, I think in 2050, you need twice the landmass of Australia growing biofuels for ships. And that's just not, I mean, that's just not possible. We know that that's not going to happen. Whereas the amount of green ammonia land space, let's say with solar, I, again, I need a visual here, but it's like a small square. I think Morocco's coastline of wind could pl- could supply a third of it. There's like a small square in the Sahara Desert that could supply all of the green ammonia for the shipping industry. It's just much more scalable than biofuels. Biofuels, I think, will need them for certain applications where uh, for one reason or another, you need a really energy-dense carbon-based fuel, in which case biofuels will make sense. But an industry as big as shipping, they knew pretty much immediately they were going to have to find something else. Would this work for airlines too, Zach? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. People haven't been thinking about it as much for airlines, although in Oxford, a startup just announced they had funding to look at an ammonia-fueled airplane design. So we'll see. There are, there are some reasons to think it's, it's probably better handled in an industrial setting. So a, a ship engine, I mean, the, the engine room is the size of my flat here in Oxford. Yeah. It's, it's a truly massive beast. Uh, and to run that, you're very industrial type of control. I wouldn't expect people to be refilling their cars with ammonia. Um, just from the, it, it's, it is a toxic chemical that should be handled in appropriate manners. So it's kind of a behind the meter power plants, I think could have it. Boat engines, I think could have it. And I think it could help trade energy between regions. So if you imagine um, right now we trade energy all over the world in the form of oil and replacing that is going to be important for certain locations who need to still import energy because they don't have enough land space for renewables or they need it at certain seasons of the year when the wind isn't blowing. They still will need to import energy and ammonia is looking at like one of the best energy vectors for, for enabling that trade between countries. So listening to you talk about it, Zach, it sounds like green ammonia is all figured out. What are you working on? Like, what is it that you're, it's got, that's taking up all your time? Because I mean, are you just there in the UK having fun? I thought you were actually (laughs) like, damn it. I thought, Berta, I'm sorry. I thought he was inventing green ammonia. (laughs) Turns out he's not. Disappointment in the family. There are some, so running it on solar and wind is a different process to some extent, maybe I'm splitting hairs for an outside view, but in the chemical engineering view, it's much different to run it on a, a variable input source, whereas hydroelectricity, you turn it on and it was fine. Um, so there is some chemical engineering challenge there. I think there's also just a big challenge of how does it fit? Like where in the energy system should it fit? So shipping is kind of a an obvious one. And there's shipping engine tests that are going on now of how can we do this. But I think there's a bigger question of where are you going to make this ammonia? How is it going to be traded? Should it be used? The question I work on is actually, of course, it's a PhD, so it's quite specific. I look at the electricity system in India and how green ammonia might fit into that problem. Because they have the, the monsoon season, they get all of their wind 
in six months. And what are you going to do in that other six months of the year when you don't have wind? You can't store it. You can't store it. You can't store, store it. wind. So, right. So you can store things in batteries, but they only make sense for storing for a couple of hours. If you're talking about storing for six months, it's definitely not going to be batteries. Chemicals are great ways to store for six months. So that's so there are. I think there are certainly questions about this is an emerging technology. How does it fit? I think there's a lot of question around in developing countries, where does it fit? Because you have a different system and, and starting point. You're, you're starting from a bit more of a blank slate than take a place like the UK where you already have natural gas pipelines everywhere. And the system isn't going to change that much in terms of certain things over the next years. India, it's growing. I mean, electricity demand is going to triple over the next 30 years. So you're going to have to build a lot of new stuff. And so there's a lot of energy system planning that, that can go into place. I also think last thing I'll say on this, I could talk forever. You got to interrupt me. <laughs> would be, I think. <laughs> oh, that don't worry, we could do that. The geopolitics of it is quite interesting because if you imagine the last fifty years has really been oil geopolitics, um, and if suddenly everyone can make their own fuel um, or get it from different places, so you can suddenly, Chile is a big player, Morocco is a big player, the US could be a big player, and this fuel might be a lot more distributed. So Australia is definitely going to be a big player. And places like Russia are not going to be a big player, or at least in this fuel, they, they don't have the renewable resources to do it. So there's going to be some shifting powers as well, I think. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So the conspiracy theorist... <laughs> And May is working hard now. I'm wondering what, so you're, Zach, do you consider yourself an environmentalist? Do you consider yourself an, an activist? Or mm. how about a designer too? I think I, I put engineers in that bucket of designer architects and, and the like, and maybe you could also tell us how you practice design if you do. Mm. And I'll take this, this case of the India electricity system. I think. I'm trying to yeah, design the lowest cost system and I have all these constraints to work with and I have different tools in my toolbox. I can build a high voltage DC line between two regions of India or I can put an ammonia boat line that's going to ship ammonia from A to B. So there's definitely a lot of design work in that sense. You'll have to help me connect the dots maybe um, more with what what you are working on and the environmental activist question i i don't know i don't i don't usually consider myself that much of an activist extinction rebellion is quite big here in the uk and i, yeah. and I have quite a few yeah. friends here who are very into it um, i was there i was at the tate and the the tate modern there yeah, in london yeah. and they had a stack of these pink books and i didn't realize it was the extinction rebellion's manifesto and i read it on the way home on the airplane and i joined when I got home, when I landed. Yeah, it's a cool organization. It is a really cool organization. So you have friends that are members? Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are. And I'm I'm kind of like keeping my ear to the ground on what's going on there. Oh, wait, I want to hear about this Extinction Rebellion. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm actually more attracted to the pink book, but tell me about this. I want to hear, what's the Extinction Rebellion? I get you a pink book, John. <laughs> It's a movie. You got my address. Okay. I Oh, boy. Now you're testing me. I, I believe they haven't been around all that long, 2017 or something. They started in the UK. And it's a group 
kind of like the Sunrise Movement, they're a youth group. This is more of an all ages group. And they they started by protesting in the streets of England. And it's basically a movement that is saying their, mo- their thing is we don't need to convince everyone. We just need to convince a small percentage. And I can't remember what it is, like 3%. To, to come along with us and that protesting creates change. But through protest, you can create change. And that's their motto. Um, and that would be not the kind of not the kind of protest Trump's into the other kind. Uh, like civil disobedience or yeah, not civil like more like peaceful protesting. Peaceful, peaceful. I couldn't think of the word. Peaceful yeah. protest. Yes. <laughs> Non-disobedient protest can, can create change. And that's their motto. And they've created all these... Kind of like um, Surf Rider Foundation, they created all these um, groups worldwide. It's, it's very decentralized organization, but it's it's had quite a bit of an effect in the UK. Um, they have like shut down streets in London for extended periods of time. I protested and- at PG&E headquarters in San Francisco in January of last year. And I was supposed to go paint a mural at Black Rock tomorrow, but I haven't gotten any instructions. It's supposed to be a non-arrestable offense. <laughs> so I was like, all right, I could do that. <laughs> but where's the, where's the fun in that? If so you're not going to get arrested, my Verda. So that might, might be off. <laughs> Verda, it sounds like maybe you're being set up uh, uh, for some jail time. I think we all need to be activists in this day and age. You're going to have to go join your friends, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> We do. We do. I think I'm also, I consider myself quite like, I'm fortunate. I was asking a boss of mine at work and he was saying, you know, I work, he has kids and he works his nine to five and more on green ammonia on the, the good fight in a way. And he, so he doesn't spend that much time on the activism side. Um, I probably have enough energy to do both. So (laughs) Well, I think you're doing a lot. Yeah. You are doing a lot. And there's different ways to save the planet, for sure. I think, too, you are a designer. A designer is somebody that takes a problem and through a series of connections and listening to people, and they find a solution that works, whether it's for space or it's for uh, interaction and engagement. It's really problem solving at a higher level. And so that's, I think, Verdi, that's why you say engineering is every bit a design discipline. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm interested with, with, you don't really consider yourself an activist and maybe it's because you don't think that you're an angry environmentalist, but I think you're clearly an environmentalist. That's, that's the path you've chosen, which is pretty cool. Do you ever come across any obstructions that are coming from the old school of, hey, let's not make any oil companies upset here. You know, we've got a way of doing things. And when you talked about the geopolitical world that you've entered into, there's got to be, I just feel like there's got to be some of that. Yes. And I think there has been a shift even in my now two years here that one of my coworkers always quotes the the amount of finance that's divested from fossil fuels and how it's kind of reached, a, it, it's crossed a tipping point where it's, I think it's above 10 trillion. Like it's just huge amounts of money that is no longer allowed to go to fossil fuel companies. And like that's starting to wake them up pretty, like you kind of got to follow the money in that case that it's a, it's a big deal. The other tipping point I saw was the UK putting net zero into law, 
because before it was about 80% by 2050, I think was the law of reduction. And everyone was kind of like, well, my industry is in that 20%. That doesn't have to change. And now it's making that net zero has changed the mindset I've found of a lot of people in industry, particularly around buying these 30-year assets. Because suddenly you realize if I buy it in 2021, it can't run on this in 2051. And that affects, again, the financial payback period of this asset. And so I've seen that make a massive difference. And I know Extinction Rebellion and, and other groups have called for, in the UK, pulling that forward. So even as early as 2035, I think, was the Extinction Rebellion goal. And there's been pushback from industry there. And because, But my insider view is that actually even 2050 has made a huge difference in getting these conversations started because they don't want to put assets on the ground in 2025 that can't function for their whole lifetime. And so in a way, it's, it's pushed it much earlier on some of these more industrial sites. I do think global warming is happening faster than we're, we're all, we're hope we were all hoping for, you know, there's a, there's a scale, right? We're all hoping for the longer, but things, especially the Arctic and places like that seem to be warming faster. So I think trying to speed, trying to speed up our own efforts is, is a good thing, but I think you're right too. Any effort is, is moving the needle. And we've talked to a number of guests where we've discussed corporate contribution versus legislation. And I, and I think we're, and individual action, right? And I think we're all coming to the conclusion yeah. that it requires a, a little bit of all of that, all of the above, but legislation is super critical, mostly because, like you said, you're not going to do it. A corporation is not going to do it if it isn't beneficial to their bottom line. And the, and the only way for it to be is for carbon to be to, to for the true cost of using that carbon to be factored into whatever manufacturing or production that co- corp company is is participating in. So it takes a little bit of every everything, right? Yeah, and I think too, Zach, when you talk about investing in assets that are going to be around for thirty years, and so if they don't contribute to this net zero initiative, this carbon zero initiative, we're not going to invest in those assets. Look at buildings, right? So the average building, commercial building is is built, unfortunately, to last about 50 years, right? And think about this. So as, as, as we start to have more conversations around carbon neutral and, you know, yesterday with Lisa from Interface talking about carpet tiles that are not just carbon neutral, but carbon negative. So they are designed and manufactured to absorb carbon as a, as a plant would, which is amazing. So, you know, at what point is the building industry going to say, hey, if we've got carbon neutral, if we've got carbon zero initiatives that have been legislated, why and why are we putting a building up right now that's not going to be able to contribute to that initiative? So to use Zach's terminology, I think we're really close in the commercial building industry to a tipping point where we're going to start saying, what kind of a carbon impact is this building going to have both in its operational carbon and its embodied carbon, and now looking at what partners are using carbon-neutral fuel sources uh, to make what we're buying. Yeah. It's really, 
It's pretty, uh, it's pretty interesting. So green ammonia, man, That's- green ammonia. So Zach, what's next once you finish your PhD? Where, where do you want, where do you want to do be and where do you want to land? I'm not entirely sure. I think I want to go get these things built. Um, so I'm tending less in academia and more in the real world of, of industry and, and getting some green ammonia plants and green ammonia utilization off the ground. Is that going to take you to India? Where is that going to take you? I, at this point, who knows? It might. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Uncle John. <laughs> Damn it. I don't know. That may be tough for me to get out there. <laughs> uh, you'll, have, you'll have a good place to visit if I do end up uh, somewhere, yeah. somewhere around the world. So, yeah, it's going to be about putting those plants, getting those plants up, fired up and running online. I think awesome. so. And, and any... I've toyed a lot with the policy angle of whether or not to to be more on that side. Um, if that is where I can have the biggest impact, I got to go to the House of Lords in the UK to talk about green ammonia at the end of last year. How civilized! <laughs> Which was quite exciting. Yes. So so we'll see. I have another year and a bit to figure it out. Well, I think the great thing is that you know you're young, lots of energy. I think that. Uh, there's a lot we can learn from you, my friend. Likewise, Amazing. I think that I have. I'm I'm grateful to be in a place where it's my job to learn. Verda's ready to adopt you as a designer. Yes, <laughs> I was. I was actually just thinking that, in a way, like so. I I always say it's the simplest process. We just smash nitrogen and hydrogen together. But the the fact that the nitrogen comes from the air, the hydrogen comes from water. We make them into this. NH3. And then when we use it, we just put them back in the air and the water. So it's a very, like, it's inherently cyclical. It's not going to, mm. to change anything. Um, and in that way, whereas other things that require carbon input, you're putting it back and, and you have to integrate the carbon into that cycle. We have a cycle that's fundamentally no carbon. It's just water and air into a fuel. It's designed. Yeah. It's designed for the circular economy. It is. It's yeah. perfectly designed for the circular economy. That's that's amazing. Well, we should probably wrap it up. It's we're coming on our hour here. Uh, it's getting close to sleepy time for Zach. So, uh, hey Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure. I can't tell you how good it was to see your happy smiling face. <laughs> thank you for having me. I, I have listened to the episodes of the podcast that are out so far, and I've really enjoyed them. So I'm honored to be a guest. Verda, ah. oh. a fan. It's been a fan. Speaking we, with you, just incredible. We need to have more fans on our podcast. Why didn't we start with green ammonia instead of biofuels or coal or like? Did we, was the technology just not there? You make it sound so simple. Like if we just started in, during the industrial revolution with green ammonia, we wouldn't be having the problems we're having. Yeah, it was really just about cost. Actually, in World War II in Belgium, they did run buses on ammonia because they ran out of fossil fuels. So it's not to say that we haven't actually been doing this, or it wasn't on our radar for some time that we could use this as a fuel. Um, it just came down to cost and it's fossil fuels. The true cost of climate change is going to be billions and billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. And and we didn't know what kind of harm we were doing, yeah. you know, burning fossil fuels. Well, we so I think when... But I guess we didn't. Yeah. You know. yeah. Well, we knew 30 anyway. years ago. 
Yeah, that's true. All right, well. Rachel Carson was writing about it a long time ago. She was writing about it 60 some odd years ago when she wrote The Silent Spring. So, um, well, we're counting on. We should have known. Yeah, we're counting on you, Zach, to to get things going, up and running quickly. No pressure there. No pressure, Zach. But damn it, we're running out of time for you to save the world. There's a clock up on Union Square right now in New York City. I believe you've got about seven years. 